This is the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Good afternoon. I'm Callie Buchanan. Thanks for your company on the Queensland Country Hour today. We're going to talk a little bit about the weather. Yes, there is a fire weather warning in place for parts of Queensland today. Probably a sign of things to come for this spring season. There's also been some news out of Indonesia when it comes to LSD. We'll get the latest from the Department of Ag on that. And this weather is proving to provide some tough conditions for mangoes as well. A look at the season ahead before one o'clock today. As always, you can get in touch with me anytime by sending a text message. All you need to do is text 0487 993 and uh, make sure you tell me who you are and where you're from and I'll get that message. That's 0487 I am going to start with a bit of information about that fire weather warning today. It is for the Channel Country, Maranoa and Warrigo and the Darling Downs and Granite Belt fire weather districts. So this one was... All- was issued at about five o'clock this morning um, and it's worth noting that for the rest of today there's a catastrophic fire danger forecast for the Darling Downs and Granite Belt an extreme fire danger forecast for the Channel Country, Maranoa and Warrigo. I'll have some more details on that for you from the Weather Bureau and from QFES after about half past 12. But as always, it's a good time to check your bushfire bushfire survival plan, even if you're not in those districts, and also monitor the fire and weather situation through ABC Local Radio or through the QFES website or the Bureau as well. And as always, if you or your property is in danger, do not hesitate to call triple zero. First today, though, we're going to take a look at the latest on varroamite. There have been three new detections of the deadly bee parasite in New South Wales, two near Tamworth and another at Ranald in the Riverina. And that's in addition to some confirmed late in Friday. The New South Wales Department of Primary Industries has also announced that it will allow restricted movement for more than 20,000 hives on almonds currently stranded in four red zones in the Sunraysia and Riverina regions. But an estimated 8,500 hives located up to three kilometres of the infested premises will be subject to euthanasia and beekeepers there in, affected by that will be eligible for compensation. The DPI's Deputy Director-General of Biosecurity and Food Security, Dr John Tracy, is speaking with Kim Honan. Hives located within zero to three of an IP will be eradicated as per the response plan. So that it's normal. Um, but beekeepers with hives within a three to six kilometre radius of any identified site can move their hive anywhere within the Uroli or Nericon emergency zones, but there's a couple of conditions on that. They need to notify DPI of that movement. They need to also, uh, modified strips also need to be in place, and then they must um, stay within those zones until surveillance requirements are met. And is there enough floral resources in those zones for those hives? How many of them are there, 13,500? So there's, there's a large number of hives moving in, um, so yeah, look, I think the, 
the, the work that the team's done and the industry have done in those zones indicates that there is floral resources available um, in citrus and um, in other opportunities there. It's, it's, it, it's limited in terms of time frame, but certainly for the short term, there'll be, there'll be resources available. And how many hives are there in that uh, area up to three kilometres of the infested premises? Uh, we're still finalising numbers on those, but we're looking at about, about 8,500. Okay, and so they need to be eradicated then? So, so they'll the... be just treated the same as every other red zone, basically, the, the, uh, in accordance with the plan, and those um, beekeepers will be eligible for, for compensation. Yeah, and can you tell me how many of those have already been euthanised? Is it just the, the infested hives? So the IPs have had um, miticide strips applied to them and they'll be the first, um, they'll be the focus basically. The priority for the response remains on surveillance activity and tracking movements and delimiting that Kempsey zone, so that's a priority. Um, the teams will then uh, focus on those IPs and work work from there. And the, in the 6 kilometre to 10 kilometre zone, what will beekeepers be able to do with their hives there? So those in the 6 to 10 uh, will be able to move their hives to any, any point within that greater uh, emergency zone, so that's the blue zone. Um, but again, they'll, they'll need to have miticide strips in, in place or on arrival at that new location. They need to, to let us know where they're moving and they'll be treated as a... a um, a dangerous contact premise, which which basically means DPI will be undertaking further surveillance of those hives. Are hives going to be able to move back into these red zones next year or are they going to be locked out for, for three years like hives will be in other red zones across the state? So I think that, that'll still be part of those further conversations about the future of the plan. At the moment, we're operating under the existing response plan and so at the moment, that those conditions will be the same as other red zones. So it will be a, a case of moving through to proof of freedom in those areas. And when will uh, euthanasia of those hives start in the zero to three kilometre part of the red zone? As soon as we, uh, we, we can get our teams um, down there, so shortly. So you're still confident that eradication is possible? So yeah, that's something that's, that's reassessed all the time. At the, the present point in time, we're, we're operating um, with that in mind. We're, we're targeting eradication. I think it's important that we, we we always take a look at the information that we've got and reassess that based on what's right in front of us. That's Dr John Tracy, the New South Wales DPI's Deputy Director General of Biosecurity and Food Security, speaking with Kim Honan. At the moment, the number of infested premises in that cluster in New South Wales is 236. You're listening to the Queensland Country Hour. It's 12 past 12. If you'd like to share your views on how Varroa mites being handled or any of the other issues you hear on the program, please send me a text message. The number 0487 now, the federal court today will hear from expert witnesses on behalf of 800 cancer victims in a case against multinational chemical company Monsanto, now owned by Bayer. The judge will need to decide if Roundup and its active ingredient of glyphosate is a cause of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
The 800 Australians in the class action come from all walks of life and many are involved in farming and agriculture or vegetation management. Lead lawyer running the class action at Morris Blackburn, Andrew Watson, says the Australian case follows a number of similar cases in the US and Europe. What that led to is us initiating this proceeding some years ago uh, in order to obtain compensation for those people who had developed non-Hodgkin's lymphoma uh, as a result of their exposure to Roundup. And today, uh, the trial commences uh, to determine whether or not uh, glyphosate is in fact a carcinogen to humans. And how many people in your class action? Uh, Apparently we have 800 registered, uh, but obviously enough there will be more people than that. Uh, Some people won't yet have registered. Uh, So we're talking hundreds of Australians who've been affected by this. And I would imagine a number of those would be farmers because we have already reported on a number of farmers having cancer that they claim was from Roundup. Yep, yeah, uh, there's certainly a significant proportion of the of the class who have worked in the agricultural sector. There's also uh, people like our lead applicant, Mr McNichol, uh, who worked in vegetation management uh, and so was spraying weeds uh, pretty much every day of his working life. And then, of course, there are some people who are domestic users. Uh, they tend to be... Uh, what might be described as more heavy domestic users, people with sort of two-acre blocks and the like. So it it covers a range of different people in a range of different occupations, but certainly a number of people who are from the agricultural industry. As Andrew Watson, he's the lead lawyer at the Morris Blackburn Lawyers handling the class action against Monsanto about Roundup. He was speaking with Michael Condon Bayer, who owns Monsanto now, has been contacted for comment. Definitely potential for that trial to have wide-ranging ramifications. We'll be keeping you up to date as that case develops here at the Queensland Country Hour. It's a quarter past 12. The Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. To the latest on lumpy skin disease now and a departmental spokesperson for Dr Beth Cookson, who is the Acting Chief Veterinary Officer of Australia, let us know that late on Saturday afternoon, the 2nd of September, Indonesia advised Australia that eight additional positive tests had been recorded for lumpy skin disease in cattle of Australian orange. Uh, origin, I should say. Now, those detections were post-arrival in Indonesia. The cattle were exported from three registered establishments in Australia. The spokesperson says the registered establishments have not been suspended. The Australian government remains confident of Australia's LSD-free status and says it's in the best interests of both countries that trade be normalised in the least trade-restrictive way. She says Australia is confident of the robust systems it has for the monitoring of our animal disease status and is working closely with Indonesia and Malaysia to resolve the issue as quickly as possible. The Australian government and departmental officials are very aware of how important the live cattle trade is to Australia and particularly to northern Australia. So that is uh, some eight additional positive LSD tests recorded in cattle of Australian origin after their arrival in Indonesia. But we were notified of those on Saturday afternoon. We'll uh, stay across that one for you as well and bring you the latest as we get it.
When it comes to beef, China's economy might be slowing, but its appetite for our beef doesn't appear to be. New figures show China imported a record amount of beef in the month of July, buying more than 294,000 tonnes. Now, there's plenty coming from Australia, but most of that was from Brazil. Meat analyst Simon Quilty says there's a few factors at play. Those figures show, to me, the carryover of Brazilian beef that you might say uh, was not flowing when the BSE struck earlier in the year in February, March, which resulted in three months of, you might say, negotiation over 40,000 tonnes or so that uh, effectively couldn't go in because there was dispute over production dates and shipping dates. That slowed down shipments full stop. And so what we then saw once that was resolved, you might say some of the product that was held back obviously went out in shipments, plus there was a renewed confidence back in China. So I think a combination of factors, Matt. All right. So do you see it as just a, a one-off month? or I expect that the trend actually will remain firm, but not as firm as that month with that pent up. But I would say, you know, we're on track for another healthy year um, from all supply countries into China. And I think, Matt, that's likely to continue as we move forward. And I think the outlook, um, even though you know, we're talking of a slowed economic growth, that we're confident that the desire or need for beef will remain pretty strong over the next coming few years. And yes, we've spoken about this before, China's economy is slowing. But yeah, can you just explain why beef seems not to be affected by this? Well, I guess what we've done is look back at history and and in particular Japan, where there was very slow economic growth in the 90s. uh, And it saw, you know, about 1.14% per year in GDP for 10 years, which is very slow. And what we saw, interestingly, was that at the time, Japan in the 90s was very good at saving. So household savings were 10%, and by the end of the decade had fallen to 5%. Well, today, China is one of the highest countries in the world on household savings at 30%. And so the expectation is that as these equity markets and property markets fall, the need to save gets considerably less and that money gets diverted across into consumption. And so we believe, as we saw back in the 90s in Japan, where beef imports and and protein in general doubled over the 10 years and prices actually rose 40%. So the expectation is that we will see those savings in China be re-diverted towards maintaining lifestyle and consumption, and beef will be still a preferred item, Matt. And just finally, Simon Quilty, when we look at Australian beef exports year to date, there really is the four big customers, Japan, China, United States, South Korea. Who ends the year on top, do you think, Simon? It's a really good question. I would say that it's there's a very good chance it could be a two-way race between China and probably Korea. I think Japan seems truly lacklustre. The freezers are somewhat full across Asia, 
I think the situation into North America that, you know, this drought, the tail of this drought is still um, a concern. And I think all the benefits of America won't appear until next year, uh, 2024. So I think it's going to be down to China and Korea just because that is where the additional production and exports seem to be going at this point in time. Not particularly at good prices, Matt. So let's not mistake this for strong demand. It's just that we're pricing ourselves in there at competitive levels. And that's a really important fact. That's Simon Quilty from Global AgriTrends speaking with Matt Brand. And you can read more about those trends online if you search for ABC Rural. And you can stay up to date with all the latest rural information as it comes to hand. If you're not uh, already listening to the Queensland Country Hour on the ABC Listen app, or maybe you're using that to catch up on your local rural report, there's plenty of ways to stay up to date uh, on the latest rural news getting around. In a moment, we're going to talk about the benefits of soil carbon and how it could actually put more than just a good feeling uh, into your production system. And a big cattle station purchase. We'll also get to the Weather Bureau in about 10 minutes' time as well. On ABC Radio Queensland, this is the Queensland Country Hour. 22 past 12. Thargaminda Station in the state's southwest has been purchased by the Cullalibulu River Aboriginal Corporation, returning it to the traditional owners of the land. Almost a decade after the federal court made the decision to recognise the Cullalibulu people of the land, the group purchased the leasehold rights of the 47,100 hectare property at an auction last week. Toby Adams is a director of the organisation. He's speaking here with Madeline McCosker about the cultural importance of the station. Yeah, look, this is one of our most significant times in our history, particularly as a corporation um, outside of our native title determination almost 10 years ago. Um, this property came up um, for sale, um, for auction, and as a corporation, our board met to make the decision on whether we'd like to enter the auction and, and do our best to try and um, yeah buy the property. And we were lucky enough to have a successful bid. And us purchasing Thargaminda Station is just a unique opportunity where we get to buy our land back and, and manage this property. And it's 47,000 hectares of our native tidal country. So for our people, um, this is country that we get to come back to and, and enjoy, but also um, enjoy the economic benefits of having this place as well. Um, it'll be something that we honour our old people with and something for our future generations that, that they'll get to um, use and manage and benefit from as well. So what is the significance of purchasing Thargaminda Station for the Cullerley people? Yeah, look, it's a beautiful um, station, a little one in comparison to some of the stations that are in the region, but um, it's, a, it's a beautiful station, very close to the Thargaminda Township. Um, but the station itself has uh, some very strong cultural significance for us. We we have some of our um, Sandhill burial grounds that are situated within the station, but we also have a lot of Cullerley people where their ancestors were, were born um, either in the homestead here or on, on the station, um, but also a lot of our Cullerley people who had their ancestors taken from this place as well. So um, we know that this place has very strong 
cultural significance to many Kalali people and us purchasing the place back is we, we hope it'll be a form of healing and, and our people being able to reconnect with the country here. Yeah. And what are the plans at this stage? Obviously, it's still pretty early days. You've just purchased the property, but what are the plans that you have to, to run it? Will it run as a station as it has previously? You know, what are you hoping to do? Yeah, um, look, obviously, it's very still very new for us. Um, we're lucky enough that the station comes with um, some head of cattle, so we'll continue to run um, the business as business as usual. So there'll be cattle on the property, and as a board and as um, Cullerley people, we'll, we'll meet with our um, native title holders and, and families and talk to them about what they'd like to happen out on Thargamida Station. And for us, there's lots of opportunities there that lie within um, business, within cultural tourism, um, within um, cultural reconnection. So there are a lot of opportunities for us, but for the time being, it'll be business as usual and, and continuing the cattle station. The previous owners really loved this country and really loved the station. And if you get the opportunity to go to Thargamina Station, you can just see how well they took care of the place. So what's the direction that you want to move in now that you have made this purchase and, and you do have this land back in the Kalali people's hands? What do you hope to do? Yeah, well, look, the purchase is a very strategic purchase and, you know, it, it honours a lot of the work that the the current board, but also our previous boards and all Cullerly people um, have done to get Cullerly people where we are today. Um, the purchase itself, it really strongly aligns with our aims and the strategic goals that we have that we hope will maximise our social, cultural and economic aspirations that we have as people. With that said, we know that the opportunities that come up, they'll benefit Cullerly people directly, but... With anything that we've done when we go back to country there to reconnect our people back to country, the things that we do, we always want to benefit uh, the local community as well. So the Cullerley Corporation, we continue to work closely with the Bulu Shire and we hope that this is a, a purchase um, that will benefit all, all of the Shire and all Cullerley people. Toby Adams, he's the director of the Cullerley Bulu River Aboriginal Corporation, speaking with Madeline McCosker. It's 27 past 12. This is the Queensland Country Hour. Farmers have been told they could actually benefit from Australia's emission reduction targets if they use sustainable practices to create carbon credits. More than 50 growers from across Australia and New Zealand got the latest dirt on an emerging revenue stream at a field day hosted by Multicraft Probiotics in Bundaberg. The company produces microbes to improve soil health and its chief executive, Connor O'Brien, explains to Nikki Sorbello there's a huge opportunity if it's done right. The first step we talk about this idea of productivity equals sustainability. So a lot of these practice changes that they're doing are driving farmers to being carbon neutral. But once they get there and they start looking after their soil, they start doing the composting, they build a healthier plant, what's happening then is they're going beyond neutral into the territory where they're getting carbon credits. So we were fortunate enough to have some of the key leaders in, in that explaining to the growers how we can quantify these results, communicate them and then translate them into the sale. It's not an easy topic to wrap your head around, but the basic idea is that eventually big business is going to need to offset how much carbon it creates with carbon credits and they have to buy those from somewhere. That's where farmers come in. Mr O'Brien says traders are working with growers to measure the impacts of the practices they're already using so they can turn them into cold, hard carbon credit cash. Well, the good news is a lot of these growers, once they do the audit, 
will find that they may already be carbon neutral. You know, the best thing about this audit is it gives them a view of their entire system and what their emissions may be from their fuel, etc., and what their sinks might be from their trees and their carbon. But the short answer is we feel within a couple of years any of those farmers that aren't already can achieve carbon neutrality. And farmers are interested in finding out more, according to Bundaberg Fruit and Vegetable Growers Chief Executive Officer Bree Watson. There's been a lot of interest for many years and um, I think people still have more questions, but there is some really interesting companies that are working in this space and they're very genuine. They've been doing it for years and years. And so it's a good opportunity to bring farmers together on a physical farm where they can see um, you know, what has been applied and what the benefits to it are. But they can also connect with these companies to really understand, well, how does it work? You know, what is the role of the farmer? What is the role of, you know, the next person who will be measuring the soil carbon? And then what do they do with the credits? And, and who are they being sold to? So some people want to have control of that entire process, and, and that's excellent. Um, but then there's others that just want to increase on productivity. And if they can see increased yields out of that, then that's a great thing. Carbon Friendly works with growers to assess their emissions footprint and the potential to generate credits from it. Head of Operations Tiana Smith says farms can be as good for carbon capture as forests. So usually regenerative practices are looking at active ways of increasing carbon in the soil. Um, That's typically through applying compost and moving away from synthetic fertilisers and pesticides, um, which is great and gives us a lot better, higher nutrition food as well. But also in the process of implementing those practices, they're actually increasing soil carbon. The carbon needs to come from somewhere, and the place that carbon comes from is from the air, which means we are actually, and and where we are in Bundaberg at the moment, we're growing better, healthier trees that are sucking up more carbon out of the atmosphere. And um, in my opinion, they're not too much different from the Amazon. I mean, they're small little forests, that, and if they farm in a good, sustainable manner, they are just as good as... uh, capturing carbon as any forests that might be out there. But he says the opportunity isn't limited to tree crops. I think anybody that's implementing some good agricultural practices and that are stewards of the soil could actually use this. He could be a sugarcane farmer and do some really good stuff, you know. I think the industry stopped burning cane a very long time ago and that saved a lot of carbon going to the atmosphere. But you could also be a vegetable grower and apply some probiotics or apply some compost to the system or switch out your nitrogen source and really have a good impact on the environment. So you could be pretty much anything um, and you could still have a very good impact by switching to some more regenerative practices. Despite the boom in interest, Mr Smith says there's still a lot of uncertainty about how the carbon trade works and what it costs to be a part of it. And there's a lot of unknowns. Um, I think people are waiting to see real-world examples and what the economics around that is. Most farmers are extremely smart businessmen um, and women, and um, they really try to get the dynamics and the economics around it to make an informed decision. Back on the farms of Bundaberg, Conor O'Brien says agriculture is poised to be at the forefront of the emerging carbon trading market. It's really proud to be part of this change. You know, the agriculture has been uh, seen as a contributor in a negative sense a lot to um, the climate change, but it's going to be one of the major solutions and it's driven by these great farmers that are doing these things. So from my perspective, it's wonderful to see these farmers embracing it and helping us to achieve what we all want to do in terms of being a more climate-friendly country. That's Multicraft Probiotics Chief Executive Connor O'Brien ending that report from Nikki Sorbello.
In an emergency, turn to a source you can trust. At the ABC, we're dedicated to helping you during natural disasters and extreme weather events, and to making sure the ABC is part of your safety checklist. Follow your local ABC on social media. Find and save your local ABC radio station. And for more ways to be prepared, visit abc.net.au slash emergency. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. 27 to 1. And yes, we are getting our first taste of our emergency season this week. Joining us from the Weather Bureau this afternoon is Livio Regano. Good afternoon, Livio. Good afternoon to you too. Yes, we are looking very closely at those fire weather warnings. What's the current situation? Yeah, look, there's two main patches we're concerned about. The first is the Darling Downs, simply because the um, fire dangers have reached just marginally into the catastrophic category, which doesn't happen very often. It was only introduced this category quite recently in Australian history to account for the fact that our fire seasons are getting worse, let's face it. Um, And... um, we have a fire weather warning for that area, and there's another area where the fire dangers have reached extreme, which is above a, uh, the uh, 50, and that includes the Channel Country, the Maranoa and Warrego. And uh, in both cases, it's because of hot, dry northwest winds. They're quite gusty, um, and there's a lot of fuel load because you know, several months back, and back into even the previous winter, we had some pretty good rain, and there was a lot of new growth, and that's all dried out now, and that's all combustible. Mm. And so how long are we likely to see these conditions around this week? So it doesn't matter how you really look at it. Today is probably the worst day. Certainly for the Darling Downs, tomorrow will be a little bit better. We'll still have a fire weather warning for extreme fire dangers. It won't be catastrophic anymore tomorrow. But the influence, you know, the trough that's bringing the northwest winds, that'll start to weaken. Uh, and for the Channel Country and Maranoa Warrego, tomorrow we'll be back into the high category. So the warning will likely be cancelled, but the danger will still be there. And what about for other parts of Queensland over the next couple of days? Yeah, so in general, um, the, uh, there are no other warnings current and uh, most places are either moderate or high. And even in the new scale, a high fire danger isn't that high. It's, mm. um, it's, it's high enough to be concerned about, but not high enough for the Weather Bureau to warrant a warning. And that includes Capricornia, Central Highlands, Central West, Northwest, Gulf Country, Northern Gulf Fields, um, which has just been downgraded to high. It was uh, extreme a, a short time ago. Um, to look forward to, though, on Thursday, we've got northwesterlies developing again, some quite mm. hot conditions, and we may reach extreme again in the northern gale fields, in the central west, and again on the Darling Downs and Granite Belt. Sounds like it's definitely time to be checking that bushfire survival plan either way. In terms of the broader weather pattern, what are we uh, expecting over the next few days for Queensland? Yeah, so it's been a mixed bag. We're currently getting thunderstorms all over the southeast. Um, there was a, a little bag of them early this morning that surprised a few of us. They were on the forecast, but maybe to not that degree and not uh, at that time of day. Um, but uh, then they sort of since uh, settled down and a new wave has come, again affecting same areas, tending to be building around the scenic rim and the, the Lockyer Valley and then going towards the coast. Um, After today, that will all be gone and most of the state will be dry until probably Thursday when the first showers return to the north tropical coast. And in terms of the coastal waters forecast over the next few days? 
Yeah, look again, it depends where you are on the mm. Gold Coast. We've got a strong wind warning for those north-northwesterlies tomorrow, so that's not great. But as you go further north into the tropics, it becomes more benign. In tropical waters at the moment, Cairns, Townsville, Mackay, it's absolutely beautiful boating weather. You know, in many cases, you aren't getting even more than 10 knots, or certainly not more than 15. Um, but even then, around midweek, we have a, a sort of a moderate uh, southeasterly change affecting the coast, and the winds will return to 15 or 20 knots. Not particularly bad, but just choppy enough to maybe, as in a disincentive to do some recreational fishing, <laughs> might be better off taking a sailing boat out or something. And what about the uh, uh, the temperatures? Are we expecting things to stay on that warmer side? Yes, I'm afraid so. Well, for better or for worse. Mm. Um, yeah, look, at the moment, the pattern that we've got is that uh, the trough that's producing the warmer north-northwesterly winds over southern Queensland, it's never really going to move offshore properly. It'll, it'll just weaken where it is, and so the winds aren't going to fully turn around. Normally, we like to see a really decent southerly change, you know, flush out the air and cool it right down. It's not going to be that way. Mm. It'll just be subtle shifts in temperature. Overall, though, the um, temperatures will remain above average. Any other key features of the charts for us to be across over the next little while? Look, I think the main things at the moment are the fire dangers. Mm -hmm. If we can get through today and tomorrow, we'll be doing all right until uh, later in the week. Livio Regano, thanks for your time on the Queensland Country Hour. My pleasure. It's 23 to 1. Your fire plan should consider what you'll do if you and your family cannot leave your property and are forced to escape from a burning house during an intense bushfire. You need to think about when you would leave, what you would take, and what you'd do with your pets. Being prepared with contingency plans for different scenarios will help to keep you calm and increase your chances of survival. Keep listening to ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. And as Livio did mention there, there have been some changes around how those warnings are talked about. You can get the latest information uh, on our website, abc.net.au slash emergency. It also gives you a good little wrap up of um, emergencies in your area or if you're checking on someone wondering how somebody else that you know in Queensland might be looking, you can uh, direct them to that website. It also gives you some great information about preparing for the upcoming season as well. Now, someone keeping a very close eye on the fire weather is Superintendent James Haig. He's from the Queensland Fire and Emergency Service. Here he is explaining the situation earlier this morning. Yeah, so what we're seeing, we've got localised catastrophic fire danger in uh, parts of the Darling Downs Mount Belt forecasting district. In particular, we're concerned that the further west parts of that district around the the Gundawindi and Ballon uh, regional council areas. But we've also got significant significant, uh, extreme fire weather danger um, across the Channel Country, Maranoa and a few other areas uh, other parts of the um, Granite Belt and Darling Downs. What that means is that we're going to have some very challenging conditions. We've got high fire danger across much of the state, in fact. So pretty challenging weather coming through. We've had a couple of uh, a couple of fronts come through in the last few weeks, which have already given us a taste of this. Now it's, a, uh, it's uh, increased severity and we really need people to pay attention. Okay, when we talk about catastrophic fire danger, what do we mean by that explicitly? So when we get catastrophic fire danger, what what we mean is that it will be very difficult, if not impossible, for crews to do anything about it at at that stage. So they will have to stand back from it, and watch, and they have very defensive tactics on on any fire that should get uh, should get started. Uh, it is extremely dangerous. Uh, people should be 
and the safest place to be is away from the fire. Um, it's very much a case that that those conditions, the fire is is unlikely to be controlled, and certainly we're unlikely to be too much direct attack, as we would say, to it to to try and uh, stop a fire. So therefore, people need to be very aware of those conditions and what they need to do. Uh, the the at this point in time, when we've just had it's the first one of the season. It's just another reminder across Queensland: have your bushfire survival plan prepared and understand what it means. Similarly today, being a Monday, we've got uh, people at school and so on. So we really need people to understand and communicate to their families what the plan is because they're likely to be separated. So things like that, very important to apply. We're four days into spring. Is this a typical situation for this time of year? It's early, but not that early. Remembering that a fire danger system, uh, fire danger season tends to run uh, from the north of Australia down to the south. It does that over... over uh, um, it does that over the, the sort of summer months. So Queensland usually starts earlier, but to have this high fire danger rating this early is indicative that we've had a lot of dry weather. Um, we went straight from more or less straight from a very, uh, very wet conditions with the La Nina and into significant dry uh, conditions, particularly in the southern half of the state, area south of uh, the, the Tropic of uh, Capricorn in particular. That's Queensland Fire and Emergency Services Superintendent James Haig speaking to Chris Mitchell. And I'm pleased to say, having a quick look at QFES's current incidents, you can head along and have a look yourself, QFES, so qfes.qld.gov.au slash current dash incidents. We'll show you the map of current incidents around Queensland. There's a few at advice level, but thankfully not much happening in that real sort of worry area of the the Darling Downs. Uh, And it looks like that those conditions are easing as well. So that's good news. We can just hold on for the rest of today. We'll uh, get through it. And a good reminder to be up to date on what you would do if that was your part of our great state currently under threat. It's 18 minutes to one. Remember, you can always send me a text 0487993322 to get in touch. Maybe you've got some a, a good you know, pro tip about what you should have in your bushfire plan that maybe you hadn't considered before that you want to share. You can do that by sending me a text 0487993322. John at Tolga sent me a text earlier where we were talking about those new detections of lumpy skin disease in cattle of Australian origin, but they were detected in Indonesia. He says LSD doesn't affect frozen cartons of beef. Indonesia imports frozen buffalo meat from India, so it doesn't really need live imports of Australian cattle. Very interesting to see uh, just how much of that uh, caution around the trade relationship right now is based on LSD concerns and how much might be about supply internally. It's a, a good point to raise. Thanks for your text, John. You can send me a text to 0487 you're listening to the Queensland Country Hour on ABC Radio Queensland. Now, it's not just our bushfire preparedness that's being challenged by current weather conditions. Farmers are warning mango lovers to prepare for undersupply of the tropical fruit this Christmas. The state season is struggling due to an unseasonably warm winter in North Queensland. Here's Lucy Cooper with the details. At a North Queensland mango farm, the season isn't shaping up the way everyone had hoped. At the moment, I'd say it's not great. The, the weather's definitely had an impact on us this year. David Lawrence is the farm manager for two of Manbaloo Mango's farms. Manbaloo is Australia's largest Kensington Pride grower, 
with two farms in the NT, three in the Atherton Tablelands and two in the Burdekin region of North Queensland. Speaking at Horseshoe Lagoon, one of Mambaloo's Burdekin-based farms which has 18,000 mango trees, David said it was August when he realised it was going to be a difficult season. Oh, I would say beginning of August, first week of August, we're usually pretty cold but we sort of didn't really get the temperatures that we wanted. Mangoes need cold winter nights to grow fruit throughout spring and summer. So you need colder temperatures to induce buds and bud break, which then forms flowers. Consecutive weeks of cold temperatures, anything below, I'd say 12 degrees is perfect consecutively for weeks or up to a month would really help. We've had a couple below 12s, only a handful but not really consecutively. Most of them have been the coldest we've sort of been, have been around that 16 degrees as minimums, so it's not optimal. It's been above normal temperatures for winter, hence the flowering of the mangoes. It sort of slowed it down and made it a lot later than usual. So David says it's been colder than average because of poor mango flowering, but has it actually been a warmer winter? Here's senior climatologist for the Bureau of Meteorology, Greg Browning, to explain. It has been a warm winter, so temperatures, uh, maximums and minimums have been around a degree above the, uh, the long-term average. Uh, so it has been a particularly warm winter. Um, hasn't been especially dry. There's been some good rain in some areas around northern Queensland. But certainly right across Queensland, we've seen above temperatures for maximums and minimums this winter. Uh, certainly the forecast is showing quite a strong signal for above average temperatures continuing. And we do expect that to continue right throughout spring, basically. And uh, uh, rainfall will be probably closer to average. Uh, nothing exceptional there, but certainly ongoing warm conditions and, yeah, likely to continue into to summer so uh, certainly they're going to get those warm days for the the fruit um, but um, yeah the, there won't be too many cool nights sort of going forward as we get into the warmer time of the year. Slow flowering essentially results in low yields. I would definitely say below average at the moment we're probably sitting at about 30% of our usual yield but um, I'd expect that to increase significantly over the next two to three weeks. That significant increase David is referring to is because the temperature will now increase with spring upon us, but it won't be a saving grace. We'll have still the best quality mangoes and there just won't be as quite as many this year. I hit the streets to get people's reaction to fewer North Queensland mangoes at Christmas time. That's really sad actually. What will happen to our mango daiquiris? We will be devastated. <laughs> Mango's always been part of Christmas. Like, it's just so refreshing and something really simple and cool and, you know, to eat. Like, it's, yeah, it's North Queensland. It's, yeah, oh, that's really sad for the farmers. Definitely we'll grab as many as we can, dry what we can so we can eat it throughout the year. Like, yeah, we always do that. You put it in the dehydrator and dried mango is just beautiful so you can have it all through the year. Mango daiquiri recipe how does that one go? Oh you have to ask my sister she's a champion I'm sorry I just drink them. <laughs> Nature will take its course won't it and um, if they turn up we'll have to eat them if they don't we can't eat them it's the stark reality of it. 
oh, it's terrible. Like, what are we going to do? You know, everyone loves um, fresh mango at Christmas time. Like, yeah, not good news at all, but it is what it is, I suppose. Whilst there might not be as many, there will still be great quality mangoes on supermarket shelves. And really, that's just part and parcel of life providing food to people. That's just farming and the cycles, nature. It's never always going to be the same every year. Um, there's a lot of different factors that come involved, like colder weather, longer wet seasons, which seem to hold the colder weather out for longer. Yeah, there's quite a few factors, but it's mainly just nature. That's David Lawrence, farm manager for Australia's largest Kensington Pride mango grower, Manbaloo Mangoes. He was speaking to Lucy Cooper. Down the road in Bowen, it's a bit of a different story. One mango grower says his crop is looking to be filled with plenty of fruit. Alan Rutman speaking to Abby Holter. He's certain this season will bring the goods on his farm. Yeah, no, it looks like an exceptional crop. Um, we've had really good uh, flowering. Uh, we had a little bit of uh, average weather, like showery weather during flowering, but um, due to a good spray program, I think, yeah, we're very happy with the crop. And in comparison to last year, uh, you say you had a really good season last year as well. So, in yeah, in comparison, how does this one stack up? Yeah, I'd say it's, uh, if anything, uh, better than last year, too, given the fact that uh, our trees are, are just maturing. Um, they've probably still got two or three years till they reach full production so that's probably helped as well that they're another year bigger since since last season. I think we're going to do probably anywhere over 100,000, 100 to 120,000 trays. Um, the fruit's sort of ranging at the at the present like end of August from uh, tennis ball size to fruit that fits in the palm of your hand. So uh, I think if we can get our act together which we've got everything uh, in place, all our machines are all serviced and ready to go, hopefully four to five weeks um, we should be able to get them off. I think uh, younger trees definitely are, are more, more uh, productive. Uh, another thing too, um, we have done KPs in the past but they seem to be very biennial. So one year uh, fantastic, the next year shocking. Um, whereas yeah we've stuck to R2E2s which are, are more consistent. Uh, on top of that I, I think our, our spray program like keeping them clean uh, really helps the whole way through. So looking around at all of your trees, they're looking really full. There's a lot of a lot of crop on them at the moment and quite a few big ones. Is this pretty good early on in the season? I mean, is it usually a little bit later that you're looking at these type of crops? Yeah, it, it definitely is. It's earlier this year. I think uh, flowering might have um, been a couple of weeks earlier, but I think the warmer winter uh, certainly has helped. Like, We've had a few cold snaps here and there, but nothing prolonged. And oh, you feel today like it's 27, 28 degrees. It feels like a end of September day, yet it's August. So I think that's really helping accelerate the, the growth of the fruit. During the winter season, you generally need about five nights of, you know, under 18 weather. Was that how what you experienced this winter? We did, we did get early uh, cold. And I think that's the other advantage of young trees. They sort of... They, they sense that, that cool a lot lot better. Even our farms, um, we're very careful with where we planted them. Um, I, I certainly believe in like a, a microclimate. Um, we make sure that, yeah, the blocks where we picked them, uh, they, they're sort of very suitable for, for early mangoes. Where our old way of doing things was uh, to have big five metre high trees and you used to have to have a, a fleet of cherry pickers, which is sort of fairly expensive to maintain and 
and run. So now with this higher density uh, planning, um, it's sort of we've gone to just a little creeper gear tractor with two bins front and back and uh, it's just hands and hands and feet and off we go. Everyone grabs two mangoes into the water and yeah, they come off real quick. What is the pricing looking like? I, I think uh, like last year we started off uh, at around that late $30 uh, a tray. I'm hoping this year it, it could be even higher than that. Um, it's looking like there's not going to be that huge um, glut of mangoes coming in behind. So if that, that's the case, hopefully, yeah, uh, could even be uh, in the 40s, um, which is, yeah, that's it's a good start. Would it be beneficial if there was a little bit less this year than there was that massive glut last year? Yeah, absolutely. That, that's all that does it is when there's just too much volume, uh, the market uh, just becomes saturated and it can't handle it. And the only way to move it is to um, lower the lower the price. And that's what happened. A desperation set in and uh, I heard even prices as low as six and seven dollars a tray, which is uh, really sad for those farmers. Anything else you wanted to add? Keep buying mangoes because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think there'll be uh, enough around and they'll be uh, nice and juicy and sweet. Alan Rutman speaking with Abby Holter. This is the Queensland Country Hour. It's 7 to 1. We'll be off to the Toowoomba sale uh, before 1 o'clock. And I'm going to ask you in a moment how well you slept last night. But uh, remember, you can always send me a text message, 0487993222. Question on the text line with Varroa mite. Did the DPI eradicate the, infective, eradicate the infected hives at night to get the best possible results? I don't know the answer to that question. If you do, you've got about six minutes to send me a text, 0487 2 to let me know. Otherwise, I'll look into it for you for tomorrow. I'll give uh, Kim Owen a ring and find out what they're up to down there in New South Wales. In the meantime, though, there's a new study hoping to get to the bottom of why many fly-in, fly-out workers find it hard to sleep. It's the first of its kind research that's looking at what can be done to improve your sleep environment, whether that's less noise or a different temperature or even more suitable bedding. Head researcher and PhD candidate at Edith Cowan University, Philip Baranek, says the study could help 100,000 FIFO workers across the nation get better sleep both on site and when they're at home. We are in particularly um, looking at the four big um, extractive industries, including the mining, oil and gas, harvesting and coring industries. Yeah, this um, survey is Australia-wide, so we are trying to really capture the, the big picture with that. Now, there has been research done on the FIFO industry and sleep before. So how is this different? It has been like research has been done in terms of uh, characterizing the the sleep patterns. There's been one study published last year with uh, the lead of um, Dr. Gemma Macy, and what they've observed was that the FIFO workers um, experienced sleep difficulties. For instance, um, the FIFO workers um, spend uh, quite a long time awake during the night or during the day when they were working night shifts. So basically during the time between they fell asleep and they got up for work, so their sleep was uh, was interrupted. And we are now basically going a step further um, where we are trying to investigate factors that impact their sleep. And one such factor yeah, may be um, the sleep environment, um, which has not been investigated at all in the 5 um industry. So 
this is literally our first of its kind study and we are really looking forward um, to get the results. Now, we know that there are over 100,000 FIFO workers in Australia. What do you think a study like this will mean for them? How could it help them? And so by looking at the sleep environment and looking which specific environmental factors um, may influence their sleep, this could be potentially um, temperature. When we are talking about a sleep environment, we are really talking about on-site sleep environments, so when they are on-site, um, but also when they are at home. Um, because the study that was led by Dr. Gemma Macy that, that I mentioned earlier um, showed that, they, that the sleep difficulties um, were also present during their time off at home, which is also understandable if, if someone got like little kids running around the house um, or, or in summer, this, the sun's up really early, so light might, might enter the, the room. Um, so that can disrupt the sleep. So by, by investigating this, we are really trying to, um, to gather data and then to inform individual and organizational improvements. And this can be, for instance, um, inform companies um, for their on-site accommodation. Um, so, for instance, if noise is an issue, um, what can be then done to improve that, to reduce the effect of noise on, on, the, on the sleep of FIFO workers, which could, for instance, be... Um, create a, like have thicker walls um, in the dongas or have the dongas a bit further apart. We know that there are, there are many environmental factors um, that can influence the sleep um, and that there includes like temperature, light, noise, but also the air quality and the bedding. Um, if, if you have a mattress that doesn't really suit you, that you are potentially going to disrupt your sleep. Just li little adjustments like that um, but also on the individual base um, for the FIFO workers themselves, um, what they can do to to reduce the effect of environmental factors um, on that, and maybe also like how to set up their home sleep environment to really improve their their sleep, because yeah, we know that that sleep is so important for so many health and performance or like daytime functioning um, outcomes. That's Philip Baranek with Tara DeLandgraf. If you would like to know more about that story, that study, head online to www.sleeproom.com.au. They are still looking for participants. Off to the markets now. Trevor Hess is at the Toowoomba cattle sale. Here are the latest prices. The number of cattle penned at Toowoomba today remained very close to the previous week's level of 212 head. A fair panel of buyers was present, ever one major feeder operator remains absent from the buying panel. There was a wide variation in the quantity of the young cattle, and this also flowed onto the cow section. Selected lines of lightweight yearling steers to restock as experienced fair demand, however most classes of yearling heifers followed the trend of other selling centres and sold to a much cheaper market. Prices for the small number of cows varied according to the standard available. Most of the young cattle sold to restockers. Well-bred lightweight yearling steers made to 300, the under 330 kilo lines to 308. Heavyweight yearling steers to feed averaged 217, made to 220. Lightweight yearling heifers to restockers and processors sold from 140 to 170. The medium-weight yearling heifers sold from 124 to 198. Thank you, Trevor. That's it for your Queensland Country Hour. It's now one o'clock.